This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift Vieira's Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight only on Disney Plus. TV, comics, movie stars, hit singles, and some toys. It's trivia and dirty jokes, an evening with the boys. Once is never good enough for something so fantastic. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Colossal classic. Hi there, I'm Jackie the Joke Man Marling, and I've had the exquisite pleasure of once again being on Gilbert Gottfried's amazing Colossal Podcast with the wonderful Gilbert Gottfried and the equally amazing Frank Santo Padre. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and our engineer Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a producer, occasional actor, and one of the most prolific, accomplished, and admired directors in the history of popular entertainment. He's directed thousands of hours of primetime television on landmark shows such as The Mary Tyler Moore Show, The Bob Newhart Show, Taxi, Frasier, Friends, The Big Bang Theory, Will and Grace, and of course, a show he also co-created, Cheers. Occasionally known as the Pilot Whisperer, he's also directed the pilots for hit series like Two and a Half Men, Caroline in the City, Dharma and Greg, Dear John, Veronica's Closet, Mike and Molly, and Two Broke Girls. Along the way, he's won eight primetime Emmys, five Directors Guild Awards, and received Life Achievement Honors from both DGA and the Television Critics Association. And in 2016, he was honored with the primetime NBC special entitled must-see TV, an all-star tribute to James Burroughs. In a long and very successful career, 
He's worked with and directed everyone from John Cleese to Betty White, from Tony Randall to Sidney Pollack, and Elton John to Andy Kaufman. Wow. He's also (laughs) worked with many of our previous podcast guests, including Rosanna Arquette, Ed Asner, Buck Henry, Hal Linden, Andrea Martin, Michael McKeon, Stephen Weber, Kevin Levine, and Ken jo- Levine, Ken Levine, <laughs> and, and Joe Pantoliano. Please welcome to the podcast an industry giant, a living legend, and a man who somehow managed to direct over one. Thousand episodes of television without ever working with me. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, James Burroughs. Bullet dodged. <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, James. Thanks does for this doing count, this. Does this count as working with Gilbert? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we could. I think we could chalk that up. No, it's just All right, funny. Tell him. Tell him to change his shirt. (laughs) (laughs) That'll never happen. (laughs) Hey, tell James the direction that David Steinberg gave you on Mad About You. He'll get a kick out of that. Oh, yes. Uh, I I once had to say something and run off. And David Steinberg said, "Um, could you run a little faster? (laughs) <laughs> and I and I said, I, yeah, I guess I could run fast. And then he goes, no, no, I, I don't need you to run faster. Maybe a little more gracefully. And I said, gracefully? And he goes, no, like less choppy, less um, shuffly. And then finally he threw his hands in the air and he said, can you run less Jewish? <laughs> <laughs> So obviously you had to run right to left. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Quick, see what you missed out on, James. We were talking. Go ahead, Gil. Yeah, no, we were just uh, we were gonna say Frank and I were saying maybe we'll start off with you telling our audience what what your father, who your father was, and what he accomplished. Uh, my father was a gentleman named Abe Burroughs, who was a radio writer in uh, California in the late 30s and 40s. And then uh, he was asked to rewrite the book for Guys and Dolls uh, in 1950 uh, by a man he worked with named Ernie Martin, who was a radio producer back in L.A., and my dad came and rewrote the book to Guys and Dolls. And so he be- he stayed on Broadway and he became a Broadway director and playwright writing other than Guys and Dolls, uh, Can Can, How to Succeed in Business Without oh, Really Trying, everything. 40 Carats, uh, uh, Happy Hunting, um, Cactus Flower. Uh, so he was he became a legend on Broadway. Very much so. We got a kick out of the fact where Gilbert was saying, you know, because we were watching interviews with you, and you you were just a kid watching his dad work. It was yeah, it, it, I a was, lot of the glamour uh, of it was lost on you as a kid, and certainly the the glamour of the people you were meeting. Yeah, I had uh, I had no idea. I was just I was 
occasionally trundled off to rehearsals and uh, would go to some of my dad's parties and sit around with uh, people who I had no idea what they were, who they were like. Uh, literally, I sat next to dinner at dinner with John Steinbeck. Amazing. I sat uh, with Truman Capote, with uh, Comden and Green. Kaufman. Uh, George Kaufman yeah. was my dad's first director. Yeah. And uh, so I... You know, I grew up in in that in that uh, aura, and uh, didn't quite register with me who all these people were until I got a lot older. And so, meeting these people was just meeting a bunch of boring old people to you as a kid. And going to work was like if your father worked in a grocery store. Yeah, yeah, I always describe. You know what I did was, you know, my father was a tailor, and he taught me how to make a suit. When I didn't even know I was learning how to make a suit. <laughs> I love that. I love and, that. And uh, no, I know the, the good thing about these people were they were funny. My dad's, you know, you know, my dad's friends were mainly funny. Even even Steinbeck was funny, and uh, so they they didn't spurn me as a young child. They you know they talked to me and were very gracious and. Uh, uh, so, uh, I, you know, I grew up around the intelligentsia of New York. Among those people that didn't really mean anything to you as a kid, I understand were Danny Kaye and Groucho? Yeah, I, uh, my dad was close friends, especially close with, uh, Sylvia, Sylvia Fine, who was uh-huh. Danny's wife. And, uh, I did meet Groucho once with my dad. Uh, it was, uh, I was old enough to know who he was and, uh, uh, he, uh, he, he made, uh, he made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. What do we I mean? Uh, uh, I remember I met him at, um, at Chasen's, which was a famous restaurant in, uh, sure. in LA before it was, became a Bristol farms. And, uh, I met him, uh, I had dinner with my dad there and we were walking out and there was Groucho. So we sat down at Groucho's table and, you know he, you know he talked to me as Groucho, but I, I'll never forget um, uh, uh, Adolf Zucker, who was then who was retired as president of Paramount Pictures, was about ninety five years old, and he came he came kind of shuffling through the restaurant, and Groucho from the table said, "Hey, Adolf, Adolf, hasta mañana, hasta mañana," waving his hand, calling him over to the table. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, you know, it was just, it was so mean. It was so mean. And, uh, but, you know, what could you do but laugh? Because Groucho was, the, he was that way. He was really funny. How bizarre. And you were, Gilbert and I got a kick out of the fact that as a kid, you, you showed up on this, not only the Sam Levinson show. This is the only podcast, by the way, where that you can guarantee that the two hosts will know who Sam Levinson was. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but also on on Edward Murrow, Edward R. Murrow's Person to Person, a clip I saw in your tribute special. Yeah, I was. Uh, I said my infamous line uh, uh, when Ed, Edward R. Murrow asked me what do, what do I want to do, and I said I haven't made up my decision yet, <laughs> which is is I could have said I haven't decided yet. But, uh, you know, as a 16, 15, 14-year-old, I went to show that I was totally illiterate. <laughs> <laughs> now, your, your father was called in front of the House of Un-American Activities 
be during the McCarthy scare. Yes. Yes. Because your mom was a good old lefty who made you and your and your sister march in the May Day Parade. Yeah, we, we did march in the May Day <laughs> Parade to New York City. You know, back in the – when my parents met, uh, they uh, they – you know, they were liberals back then, and liberals were communists back then. That's just, you know, that's just what it was. That was, it was another term. And uh, uh, they, you know, they they went to parties and stuff like that. And uh, my dad was called before the House Un-American Activities Committee, yes. Yeah. It's it's fascinating, too, because, uh, and we've had, you, you, you wind up working with blacklisted uh Actors, you wound up working with Guilford, Jack Guilford on Taxi. I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Did you just? Did you discuss? Did you? Did you? No. That no. was. Uh, that was. You know, uh, there were hard feelings all around with yeah. all those people. I bet. And I, it was not passed on to the kids, and the kids didn't carry a grudge or anything like that. My uh, Jack. Jack was very good friends with my mom. And uh, Zero Mostel was also good friends with my mom. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they uh, uh, you know, it was, it was a really, it was a really tough time. And uh, people were called in front of this committee for just living their lives. And uh, it was, I would, I, I can't imagine the position my dad was in. You put him in that, you, you've said it, he was in, in, a, in an impossible position because if he said too much or he said too little, he could lose either way. Right, right. Yeah. And and it was one of period. those times that, I mean, can you really, I mean, there's people who are looked upon as the enemies, but like they were under pressure too. Sure. Everybody was under pressure. It was, yeah. uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, to use a modern term, it was a witch hunt. Sure. And, uh, uh, uh because, you know, you had one guy kind of who was the energy behind this whole movement, and people were swept up, and uh, uh, it's not so sim- not so dissimilar than what's going on now. Yeah, well, we always said, we had Erwin Winkler here a couple of oh, we- wow. weeks ago, and he made that picture, Guilty by Suspicion, he made a picture about the blacklist with De Niro, and we were talking about how it could come again. You also work with Lee Grant, who we had here. Oh, wow. Fam- famously blacklisted, you work with Lee Grant on Faye. Yeah, and she was, you know, as much of a victim as anybody. Took yeah, a big chunk I, out of her career. I know. Uh, you know, a lot of people. A lot of people went to Europe and wrote wrote under pseudonyms, and yeah. uh, it, it was. Uh, I hope we never see that again. I hope not. On a, on a brighter note, we have to talk a little bit about something else that your dad did, which is the classic Duffy's Tavern. Right. Yeah, and I love these names. <laughs> you know, you can find these on YouTube, James. You can find some of the old. Clips. I found one with Burt Gordon, the Mad Russian, Arthur Treacher, and Slapsy Maxi Rosenblum. Oh, <laughs> some great names from the past. Oh, oh my God! But an iconic show. Yeah, I. You know, I was. Uh, I don't think I was trundled to that rehearsals because I may have not been born at that point. But uh, my dad was. Uh, uh, I have a picture of me and my father and Ed Gardner. Yep. Who was who played Archie, uh, Archie the manager. And I think my middle name, I'm James Edward Burroughs, is after Ed. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. And uh, uh, believe it or not, I have, he had an apron. Ed Gardner had an apron that he wore, even though the show was on radio. 
He had this apron, and uh, anybody on the show signed the apron. And uh, so Ed's mother embroidered all the signatures. So it came up for auction about 30 years ago at Christie's or, or Sotheby's, and I bought it, so I have it hanging. And the names on there, there must be 250 names on there of the people who guessed it on the show. Wow. Tallulah Bankhead, Milton Berle. Everyone. Everyone. It was it was crazy. Harry S. Truman. Wow. Nelson Rockefeller. It was crazy. Yeah, he, go ahead. Here's a, a simple and stupid question. Uh, how would you... What what how would you what's the first sign that you're working with a bad director? What are the giveaway signs? Uh I've never worked with a director. Yeah. <laughs> uh but if um uh the first the first sign of a bad director is when an actor asks a question that they say uh I don't know. <laughs> uh you can't you can't do that. You have to take a stance. You have to say if he asks a question, is this funny or not, you say funny. And if it's not funny, you say, I was wrong. Don't say, I don't know. That's the worst thing you can do. And don't uh, have an, you know, you have to have an opinion and you have to be able to um, get what you want uh, in, a, in a way that's integral to yourself. See, I, I'm not a Martinet. I'm not a strict director. I'm not saying you have to be here and you have to be there. You're not on a premature. And yeah, and well, yeah. I, <laughs> but you have to do that, and that's funny, and that's the way the joke's going to work. I'm one who takes all kinds of suggestions from everybody, and I have certain ideas, and I make sure my ideas seem like they come from the actors so that you can do this wonderful creative effort that I try to do. So bad directors are, uh, you know, people who succumb to pressure and don't have their own opinion and don't know what the particular piece or what the particular scene needs. And and you said in one interview that you tell your actors, you tell your actors and writers, you give them a suggestion and you say, this may be great, this may be shit. I do, I say that. I say, <laughs> That's I, honest. I say, uh, before I do, you know, when I started out, I would do anything. I, 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 when, I, when I started out on television, I would, you know, if a pilot was sent to me, I'd do it because I didn't have much choice. But as I got, once I did Cheers and I got uh, uh, a set of low-hanging balls, I, I, I started to assert myself more, and uh, whenever I do a pilot or work with new writers, I, uh, I have, I, you know, they, uh, I want to have a meeting with them where they think they're auditioning me, but I know I'm auditioning them, and uh, I tell them what I think, and the important thing I want from the writer is I want them to defend their material, not to be defensive about it. And then at the end of that meeting, or if I do work on the show, I will give them notes and I say, 50% of what I say is great and 50% is shit and it's your job to figure out which is which. (laughs) (laughs) I I do that because a lot comes into my head. Sure. A lot of it's not right. You know, I don't have real writer's logic. I, you know, I'll I'll sell a scene 
for a good joke. I'll sell it down the river for if, I, if I have a good joke. That may not be integral to the emotion in the piece, and it's wrong. It's That joke is wrong. It shouldn't be in there. So I don't have writer's logic, but I do have a sense of what's funny, how to make something funny, and uh, uh, I, you know, I speak a lot. One of the things you're known for, if I may, if I may say, correct me if I'm wrong, is 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 coming up with physical business that make that right. makes the scene funnier. Because you, I've heard you say uh, you you you're, you don't think like a writer, you don't have a writer's approach, but you 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 also say you absorb so much by watching your father o- over the years, and and you absorb so much working in, in Summerstock, working in theater. Yeah. I cite uh, yeah, that example I, of uh, of the the Mary Tyler Moore episode where with, with Lou and Rhoda, where you wound up putting them on a trunk. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I, I again, uh, you know, I just have that gift. You know, I call it a gift. Uh, mm-hmm. My dad used to, uh, you know, say you can't learn funny, which is true. You have to be born that way, and you know, I I, I luckily got that gene. So I kind of know what's funny. And in my first episode I ever directed, it was uh, a Mary Tyler Moore. I was brought out to do one show, and I got a Mary Tyler Moore. And uh, uh, the reading around the table, when we read the script the first time, it was like a D plus. And I said, I remember saying to Grant Tinker, who brought me out, I said, in a sea of Danish, I get a bagel. (laughs) (laughs) And... Uh, so I went down on stage and I started to rehearse and I just threw anything in I could. I invoked Shakespeare, I invoked Chekhov in the last scene between Lou and Mary uh, where they're sitting on a trunk there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to me it was like, uh, uh, I, I, I think it was like, I said it was like three sisters where, you know, they're thinking about going to Moscow, they have to move apart and, and stuff like that. So I, I remember doing everything possible to add stuff to the show. And uh, uh, I was lucky enough to to be able to impress people, especially Mary, who was running the company. So sure, sure. my career took off after that. And now I have to ask you another question that's similar to the last. How do you, what are the signs of bad writing? Well, uh, in a comedy, it's not funny. Uh, and uh, uh, it's just uh, it, to me, it's uh, you know when I when I read something, it's not the idea; it's the execution of the idea. Uh, Cheers is a show in a bar. Uh, there have been a lot of shows set in bars, uh, like but, Duffy's Tavern. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we were. A couple of people sued us. A couple of people sued us when when Cheers came out, claiming wow. that we stole it. And I, we would always say, get in line behind my dad. Wow. Because <laughs> That's a perfect he, answer. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we, we never had a problem after that. But, you know, bad writing is uh, the people don't sound like they're talking to one another or they're, they're, they're not relating or, or they're, you know, they, they, it doesn't come from the inside. It's all on the surface. So, uh, you know, it's just... Uh, it's just something you have to feel. I can't, you know, I, I can tell you what bad writing is, 
Uh, and uh, the biggest example of bad writing is the play I wrote to get out of the Yale School of Drama. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's in a vault. <laughs> <laughs> and no one has the combination. No, no. You know what? What? Two, two other quick things about your dad before we move on, James. That one to touch me too. You obviously, you said I'm not a martinet, but you said that you learned. There's so much psychology that, by the way, your description of working with actors, it's fascinating. But you said one of the things that you got from your dad was was treating people with kindness. Yeah, that's one of the things my, you picked up. Yeah, he was. Uh, you know, when I was when I was a young boy, I didn't. I, I, I didn't see it, but then when I stage managed for him uh, on uh, uh, first one was Breakfast at Tiffany's, and then on the Road Company of Cactus Flower, and then on Forty Carrots, I could see how he worked with the actors. And my dad was a playwright and a director, sure. So he would rewrite a lot on his feet, but he would always treat everybody with kindness. He would, you know, take all kinds of suggestions. He even took one from me that ended up in 40 carats. And uh, he was, he was, he, he was not, you have to be over here and you have to be over here. It was like, you know, I learned that from him, you know, uh, walk in the door. That's what I they say, starting a scene. You start over here, you start over there and let's see what happens. So, uh, it, you know that's uh, it was all it was never no don't do it that way it was never I never got angry hmm. uh, I never uh, 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 said uh, there's only one way to do it and it's my way because actors if you if you cast the right actors uh, you cast them because they're good and they're creative so they can only make the piece better and they can only make the piece better by having the freedom to experiment. And we do that a lot. I thought it was interesting too, and Gilbert will appreciate this that that your your dad gave uh, he mentored some some young people like Dick Moore, like your dad. Yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, you as well. And Woody Allen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. He wrote that letter on beha- on uh, on Woody's behalf. To, yeah. To, uh, my dad told me. My dad told me that uh, Woody Allen came to see him in. Uh, the the fifties, I guess, mm-hmm. and Woody's related by marriage to us. I'm not sure how, but uh, he came to see my dad, and he had fifty jokes. And before, you know, my dad read the jokes, and immediately sent Woody to the Sid Caesar show, and uh, to. Uh, comedy of what is it? I don't remember the name of it. Oh, it was a uh, uh, your uh, show Cal- of shows. Show sure. of shows. Yeah, show of shows. So he sent he sent him over to Sid, and I he said I said to my dad, "Why'd you do it?" And he said, "Because there were fifty jokes I could have never thought of." Wow. So uh, there was a there was a connection there with Woody and my dad. And the last thing that you wanted to do was uh, go into show business. Yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> you said you wanted no part of it. <laughs> I didn't. I, I went. I, I went to. Uh, uh, I went to over. I went to music and art high school. Uh, believe it or not, I went to. Uh, it's now LaGuardia. It's combined with performing arts. Yeah. But when I was twelve years old, I I, um, I was in sixth grade and. Uh, 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 people from the Metropolitan Opera Boys uh, Metropolitan Opera came around 
and they wanted to know who could sing My Country Tis of Thee. And I, I could. I sang it, and I got into the Metropolitan Opera Boys Chorus. And I was in it from when I was 12 till I was 17. And we would go, you know, we would take the subway down there. We'd be in Geneskiki or La Boheme or, or Cavalry Rusticana or uh, Carmen. It was our big, was our big opera. We had uh, two big choruses. And uh, so when I was going, applying to college, uh, to high school, I sang for music and art. And I got in on my voice, which is, was horrible. I was, uh, <laughs> wow. you know, I was uh, a boy soprano and uh, uh, a bad one, but I got in. So I got into music and art. And, uh, uh, and then when I, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I didn't, I couldn't sing. I couldn't be in the entertainment world. And then I went to Oberlin College, which had a great theater department. And I didn't want to do anything in the theater. I, I felt, you know, that my dad was a legend. I didn't want to go into that business. Uh, in New York City, that was, uh, you know, he was, he was, he was uh, very, very prominent in giant. the city. And I didn't want to do any of that. I didn't think I had any of the skill. And then when I got out, they were uh, calling up people for the Vietnam War, and I didn't want to be in that area either. So I, um, uh, I had no heel spurs, so I couldn't, uh, do, I couldn't get out that <laughs> nice way. Nice touch, James. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. Lovely. And, and so I, um, my dad said, why don't you go to, to graduate school? So I got into the Yale School of Drama, and there I, I, I took a directing class with a man named Nico Sakharopoulos, who, was, who ran Williamstown, and was a director on Broadway, and I kind of said, "Okay, I see what directing is, and maybe, maybe I can do that." So uh, I um, uh, I kind of gravitated to that. But then, when I got out, it was just, you know, what do I do now? I I, I said, "Well, maybe I'll stage manage." So stage manager is a guy who runs a show in the night and direct the understudies. So slowly through that process, I got more and more into directing. But initially, I was a government major at Oberlin, and uh, I wanted nothing to do with the theater. And the rest is history. Yeah, <laughs> luckily. <laughs> quick, quick, this is a quick departure or a little, a little side, uh, a side note. But you work with two people that we're interested in in, uh, in your road company days, Don Knotts and Zsa <laughs> Yes. <laughs> any, any quick memories of either of them? Uh, yes, a lot of them. <laughs> I know we could do a seven-hour show, James, with you easily. Yes, I know. Uh, I, were, I, I ran a theater in San Diego called the Off-Broadway Theater, way Off-Broadway Theater, and uh, I was the artistic director, and we would do star vehicles. We did uh, 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 Mr. Roberts with uh, James Drury, the Virginian. Yeah, James Drury, And then yeah. we did Goodbye, Charlie with Joanne Worley, and we did uh, Who's, Afraid of Virginia, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with, uh, with Carl Betts and all the big television stars back then. Sure. And then uh, <laughs> we did Last of the Red Hot Lovers with Don Knotts, and it was a big hit. So, uh, uh, so we brought it up to the Huntington Hartford, which is the theater here in L.A., and uh, it ran for three or four weeks. So I got to know Don that way. 
uh, and he was he was a wonderful man. And so that's that. Literally, the only time I worked with Don, and then with Jaja on uh, forty carats, right? Yeah, yeah. and she is, uh, you know, God love her. She's passed away, but she was somewhat instrumental in my career. She, uh, when I was stage managing forty carats, she came in to replace uh, June Allison, who replaced Julie Harris. So with the stars who gets replaced, I would. I would do their blocking for them so they would know. And then my dad would come in and, uh, you know, do one final rehearsal and uh, get it into shape and everything like that. So uh, I would, uh, so Jaja became very fond of me. I would, you know, I I could tell her to do things and uh, I would not get a fight or anything like that. She really liked me. So I... uh, I would direct, when she would do 40 carats or she did Blythe Spirit around the country, they would hire me because I could wrangle her. And um, uh, so we went to, they hired her to do 40 carats in uh, San Diego and I agreed to do it and then she bowed out and we did it anyway with Marjorie Lord, which is how I got the job as artistic director in San Diego which is how, uh, which gave me some credentials that Mary Tyler Moore was impressed with. So, right. uh, so everything uh, leads to something else. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jaja, you know, Jaja, believe it or not, when I was running the theater in San Diego, I would come up and I would um, do casting in LA and I would always stay at Jaja's house. And, she would feed me. It was it was wow. Stra- it was a strange, <laughs> Hungarian a strange relationship. I I was, you know, I was. Uh, I I don't know. She she liked me and I liked her. I I got a kick out of her. She was very sweet and very funny. Yeah. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast right after this. That's what you say. <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's time again for Gilbert and Frankie. Their podcast is coming, your mind will be dumbing today. Here they come, Gilbert and Frankie. They promised their podcast will make you a guest anyway. Now, this question may go absolutely nowhere, but I'm hoping it's true. Why should it be any different than your other question? (laughs) (laughs) This one, someone told me that the two old guys that sat at the bar. Oh, Gino told you that. Yeah, Al Al Rosen. 
that one that Al Rosen used to be a stunt man for the Three Stooges. Uh, I think that is true. <laughs> Al Al was um, uh, his uh, title was the man who said Sinatra. Right. <clears throat> because I think the first time he ever spoke it was Sinatra. <laughs> and that was his, he said it about four times in a show. <clears throat> and we started to we started to use Al a lot. He had a couple of short lines, but he had been in the business uh, he probably was. I don't I don't recollect that, but but he was an old-time Hollywood guy, and uh, he, he's in the Stratton story. That I looked it up. The the uh, Jimmy Stewart movie, the baseball movie. Do you know that movie? The Monty Stratton I, I story. Monty got the Stratton, art, but I don't remember leg. the movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He said he had some credits in the in the forties and fifties. He was a sweetheart. He, uh, you know, he had. We used him occasionally on Cheers. He, uh, 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 but he was always really funny. Yeah, Gino, who's a friend of ours, who's an entertainment reporter out of Milwaukee, knew Al. And, oh, wow. and said, please have asked James about Al because James was very good to him. Oh, yes, we were. But he, he was good to us because he was really funny. But I can't believe that's a connection to the three stages. from From Cheers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a fun one. Did, when you were working on 40 Carats, uh, the, the story I heard, you were, you were on the road and you, you, went to a, you went back to your room and you saw the Mary Tyler Lamore show. Uh, am I, mang- I was am doing- I mangling this story? No, no, it's true. It was not the forty carats on Broadway. I was doing uh, forty carats in Wallingford, Connecticut, with Joan Fontaine. Okay, wow. And I went back to my I went back to my room uh, on a Saturday. Turned on the TV, and there was a Mary Tyler Moore show. And in my head, I said, "Wow, they're doing a half hour a week, and I'm doing a two hour show a week. I think I can do it." So that's what gave me the idea, but. To go back to How I Know Mary is uh, the first show that I worked on on Broadway was a show that my dad wrote called, uh, it, was a, it was a musical of Breakfast at Tiffany's called Holly Go Lightly. And uh, it starred Richard Chamberlain and Mary Tyler Moore, Dr. Kildare and Laurie Petrie. And um, I was in charge of Mary and Dick. I was the third assistant stage manager and they were the Hollywood people, and I was my job was to show them around. This, you know, when they came off stage, take them to their next mark and take them back to the dressing room, get lunch for them. I was really their gopher. So, uh, I, I, you know, we went out of town with the show, and we were sold out because you had Laura Petrie and Doctor Kildare. Sure, it was crazy. A and winning Dave, combination. Yeah, and David Merrick was the producer who was a great Broadway producer, and he was unhappy with the show. And I, I have to admit, it was not my dad's greatest work. <clears throat> so uh, David replaced my dad, and he replaced my dad with a man known for his musical comedy who was Edward Albee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I said to my dad, uh, can I stay on? And he said, sure. So I stayed on uh, the show, and you know my job expanded. I would go down to Edwards' townhouse and get the rewrites because there were no fax machines back then or anything like that. And uh, so uh, Merrick decided to, rather than go out of town again with the show, 
to, rehe- to rehearse the reworked version of the show in New York and open for previews. So we opened for previews, and it was a disaster. The show was a disaster. It was it was dark. There was some really good Bob Merrill songs in it, mm-hmm. but it was a dark show. And poor Mary was in tears all the time, wasn't <laughs> yeah, she? Yeah, Mary was yeah. in tears, and she would come off stage. She was crying, and I would be the person who would meet her. And uh, I would take her to her next position and stuff like that, or up to her room, and she would change. And and it was just, it was a horrible experience for everybody. And we closed after four performances. And so we became very close because this was, you know, just a disaster. And we were all in this lifeboat and yeah, we, we shared the oars. And so after the show was over, uh, Grant flew in and I sat with Grant and Mary for a while at Sardi's. And uh, so we became friends. So that's my first introduction to Mary. And so that's how she knew me. So there was some luck involved in that. That uh, she went on to have this wonderful career and took me along with her. But also a little chutzpah involved. I mean, you were were in a road company, working with a road company, and you you saw her on television. You said, I'm going to reach out. I'm going to, I I think I I can do this. (laughs) I thought I could, and uh, I guess I was right. Turns I, out you uh, could. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just talk a little bit about those those MTM glory days, James. I mean, not only the Mary Tyler Moore show, but you you directed Phyllis, you directed Rhoda. We had Paul Sand in here a couple, oh, wow. couple, couple of weeks ago. We are talking about friends and lovers. Did uh, he tell you I was his dialogue coach? He did not. He did, well, oh, we, yeah. We, I, yeah. I would go, uh, I, watched, I started by watching the Newhart show uh, because... In the particular thing that I do, multi-camera show in front of an audience, <clears throat> I knew about all the staging of the actors and everything like that. What I didn't know was about the cameras. So I had to watch for about four or five months to watch how the cameras work to get the shots and everything like that. So after a while, once I learned the cameras, before I got my first shot, I, I, would, um, I would go to Paul Sant's house on the weekends and I would run lines with him. Nice man. Yeah, sweetheart. Yeah, we love him. Yeah. Now, um, That's fun. And the, and the Tony Randall show, another oh, MTM yes. show. Right. <laughs> the the <laughs> Patchett and Tarsus show that I love that should have been oh. a bigger hit. I know. Tom and Jay made me laugh. Oh, my God. Well, the two of them were yeah. so... So funny and so mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, one of the, the hallmarks of those MTM days are those writers. I mean, yeah. Brooks and Burns and Dan Stan Daniels and Ed Weinberger we had on the podcast, by the way. Oh, you did? We had Ed here, yes. Oh, my God. I haven't seen Ed in years. Oh, he was funny as hell. But oh. love those shows. And you liked one in particular. Was that, a, was that an MTM show, the Rob Reiner thing? Uh, yes, there was free country. Oh my God! Yes, we both like that one. Yeah, tell us, tell us about that one. Uh, uh, that was I think six or seven episodes. It was about Jews on the Lower East Side, um, and Rob wrote it and uh, was in it, and it was you know everything was period about it. It was set in the nineteen early nineteen hundreds. And it was funny and Joey, sweet. Joey and Pants moving. was in it. Joey Pants, <laughs> yeah. Greeny Lippin, yep. and Judy Kahn. Yep. What were the uh, were, were the two families that uh, 
that were, were in the show, and I had a great time on that show. It's uh, I was sad to see that it was it was canceled. And and another show that you did that I think I saw about two episodes. Maybe there were only two, but I thought it was a funny show. And it had one person who I'm sure you admire because you worked with him on uh, Taxi. And that was George and Leo. Oh, the Judd Hirsch show. Yeah, oh, with God. Newhart. Sure. That I mean, a- I was in awe of working with those two guys together. Yeah, Bob Newhart I mean, Bob and Judd Newhart Hirsch. And Judd Hirsch, yeah. yeah. Bob, just when I was in college... In uh, 58, 59, my dad sent me the button-down mind record, and I could not keep the uh, my classmates out of my room. Everybody wanted to hear that record. So I was, I was just, I, I love Newhart, and then I got to work on his show, on the old Bob Newhart show, and uh, he just, nobody, nobody does it like Bob. He has it so distinctive, and he's so funny. And uh, I had a good time on George and Leo. It didn't last that long, but it, that's it. Jason Bateman was in that, Yes, too. smart show. And yeah. t- tell us about Judd Hirsch, who you worked with a lot. And we want to get Judd here. You should well, get Judd. We want Judd. to talk to him. Yeah, we think he'll do it. He's, uh, uh, you know, Judd playing Alex Rieger, this... Uh, the only one who wanted to be a cab driver. Everybody else had visions and dreams to be other places. Alex Rieger was a cab driver. That was his job. He understood it. And yet he had the soul of the wisest man in the world Mm -hmm. and would listen to all the insanity. And because he would listen, a lot like Ted Danson on Cheers, because that character listened and acknowledge the other person, the audience could embrace those people. So the skill that Judd has as a straight man is just, it's its just, it's its wonderful. And, I, you know, I had a chance to work with him again on Superior Donuts, where, again, he played the rock of the show. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, he's gloriously funny and can do any accent in the world. And, uh, uh, you know, I've had, I have had wonderful times with him. Straight men don't get enough credit. I mean, we've said that on this show many times. Newhart's another example of a viewpoint character yeah. who's, a, who's a listener so that you can accept the other crazy characters that are orbiting around right, him. Right, right. He's the windows of the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they don't get enough credit. In fact, when you watch the Mary Tyler Moore show, she doesn't get enough credit for, I know. for, for being the straight person more often than not in the center I know, you know, it's those, the ones who are either handsome or really good-looking or girls who are really pretty, who are centers, don't get the acknowledgement they should. You know, that people think they're stars because they're good-looking or pretty. But they're, they're, they're wonderful comedians, too. There's no more greater example than uh, the six, six of those people on Friends who... Uh, you know, for years, everybody thought the show was a success because they were so good looking. And it wasn't. It was that they were all deft comedians mm-hmm. and they were all the, the show was so well written. So, I mean, a lot of times you don't, these, these, the, the center of the show doesn't get the acknowledgements they should. 
And and we've had at least two members of the Mary Tyler Moore show. We had a, we had Ed Asner, we had Gavin uh-huh. McLeod, and we had Weinberger. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, tell wow. tell us about Gavin McLeod and Ed Asner to work with. And Ted. Uh, well, I was uh, that was my first job, and I was scared shitless. <laughs> you know, thank God for I, Jay I, Sandwich. I, yeah, because of Jay, who was my mentor. Uh, Jay was so sweet to me and so wonderful to me and so uh, passionate about me. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he didn't bring me out. Mary brought me out. Mm-hmm. And Jay was so supportive. Uh, you know, I tell, I'll, get, uh, I'll just tell a quick Jay Sandra story. On the first show I ever shot, I, uh, I was shooting the show and I, uh, somebody made a mistake. <clears throat> and I said, okay, let's back it up to this line. Uh, and I heard from the booth, back it up to Ted's entrance. And I looked up there, and there was Jay, and he knew I we couldn't cut the show. The show, it, it wouldn't cut together with the, with the mistake unless we went back to Ted's entrance. So he was there for me on my first show, which was so sweet. And, uh, you know, to this day... I, I still I, I love him and and you know credit him with being so instrumental in getting my butt uh, off the ground and uh, That's you nice. know to be where where I am today. That's nice. And um, uh, as far as Gavin and Ted and Ed, the great thing about them is that they never really did much comedy before the Mary Tyler Moore show. They, I think, Ted played heavies on uh, on uh, uh, the Elliot Ness show. Sure, uh, sure. And uh, Ed was uh, heavy in movies, and Gavin the same. Gangsters and on the Untouchables, that's the show. Right, that's right. And so, if you cast people on your shows who you've never seen funny, what you do is it enhances the element of surprise. Because you don't expect them to be funny, and they're funny, and you go, oh, my God, this person funny, I never knew it. And you enjoy them more. They were wonderful actors, and they were also funny. I mean, we did it on Cheers. We cast Nick Colasanto, played a coach, and Nicky had come off of the Mafia Don and Raging Bull. Raging Bull, Bull, that's right. That was, to me, I... I didn't know it was the same person. Yeah, brilliant piece of casting. That. Yeah, I remember it, him. It was so completely different. And so believable in both parts, which are polar opposites. I know. He was, uh, Nicky was unbelievable. Nicky was a director. He was, <clears throat> he was, he directed a lot of one-hour stuff. Uh, but, uh, <coughs> excuse me, when he came in, to read, we all looked at one another, said, "Oh my God!" And those are wonderful moments in the room. I'll bet when you can say, "Oh my God!" When somebody brings something you would never think to, to a part, and you go, "Oh my God, this is great!" And we're going to benefit from it. It yeah. was so, so strange because as coach, he's kind of slow-witted, good-natured, and then there's this mean scumbag in Raging Bull. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's a a surprise. Yeah. Because Nicky doesn't look funny, and all of a sudden this stuff comes out of his mouth and his attitude, and he could play that. 
he played coach. It was unbelievable. It's fascinating these casting the, the casting choices, casting these dramatic actors. I don't remember Cloris Leachman being in many comedies either. I remember uh, in the Twilight Zone and 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 dramatic, yeah. mostly dramatic work and Last right. Picture Show. Last Picture Show, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is fascinating. She, yeah, she and she was hysterical. And the people on Taxi too. I mean, I, nobody thought of Judd Hirsch really as a comedian. And De, uh, DeVito had been in Cuckoo's Nest and some and some off Broadway. Right. The fascinating casting choices. Uh, that's, uh, uh, I've been very lucky. And you were once talking about how, I mean, the character of Louis De Palma is like, you know, in real life is a total scumbag. <laughs> and and yet. But a lovable, vulnerable yeah. one, yes. So you had a theory for why he became a lovable guy. Well, his height. Yeah. I mean, and uh, God love the boys, Jim and uh, Ed Weinberger and uh, Stan Daniels and Dave Davis. When we were doing the pilot of a Taxi, uh, uh, Louis comes out of the cage in the first scene. And I remember going back after the first run through and the guy saying, we got to keep him in there till the last scene. You don't want to see his stature until the last scene. And they were right. Because when he came out of that cage, nobody could believe it. So smart. And, uh, yeah. And so, uh, you know, he had that wonderful vulnerability. And, you know, Danny's such a great actor. Such a great actor. It's so funny. You knew what right he, away when you read that script, didn't you, James? Ta- taxi. Yeah. I, I mean, I heard you say it was the hardest show you ever did. But you, you knew right away when you got the script in your hands that you had to do it. Well, no. There was no way I was not going to do it. Even when when my agent called and said, you're going to get a script from Jim and Ed, I knew I was going to do it because it was back then when I <clears throat> was kind of floundering around doing all these different shows. And when I when they cho- when, when a, writers of their reputation chose to send me a script, I knew I was going to do that show. There was no two ways about it because I knew how good they were. Now, was it you who... Uh I hope it was you who got together with the cast of Friends and said, after this, your lives are going to totally change. That was me. That was me. I uh, I was doing, I did about four or five Friends in a row at the beginning of the run. I did the pilot and I think the first four or five shows. And after about the third show, I saw how the audience was react or was reacting to these six people and the laughs were huge the writing was so good it was so funny <coughs> and i and i got warner brothers who were the producers of the show to give me the plane their their private jet to fly the six of them to vegas i just wanted to celebrate uh the fact that we were having a great time. So I flew them, uh, me and the six of them, we flew to Vegas and I took them to dinner at Spago. And I said to them, you guys have to enjoy this because this is your last shot at anonymity. Wow. And they said, what, but you're kidding me. No, no. And I said, yes, I have a feeling. Uh, I can, I have a sense and uh, I, I think this is going to be 
this show is going to be huge. So we 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 had dinner and they we went to gamble. None of them had money. They all had to borrow it from me. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, those days are over. Yeah, I know. And uh, it turns out I was right. I had uh, it was just a magical moment. I had uh, you know I still am friendly with them all. I still see them uh, a lot during the year, and it's just something special we all have. It's nice uh, of that moment, and uh, uh, you know the six, you know not six beautiful, wonderful actors, but six wonderful, sweet people that uh, hopefully will will always be friends. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. How'd you like working with? Uh, we had Ron Liebman here too. I know you've oh, worked God. with. I know you've worked with Ron a handful of times. What a sweet guy! Yeah, uh, Hudson Street. Yeah, with Tony. I, that's right. Tony Dan- yeah, yeah. And I did another one with him. Yeah, I can't remember. I don't have it on my card. Yeah, um, I'll find it. Some, Some, do, you have nothing, do you have nothing what, but Jews? Was it Pacific? On your podcast? Was it Pacific <laughs> Station? <laughs> you, uh, you, everybody you mentioned is Jewish. I don't understand. <laughs> what is it? I, I, I'm in charge of it. Well, so. <laughs> well Joey Pants, we had. <laughs> All right, Steve, right, Steve Buscemi. Yeah, and Alan Alda was here. He's a paisan like me. We, okay. I try to squeeze him in, James. It's hard. We occasionally we have a token goy. I don't. You have to. Yeah, yeah. but you have but to. Back to a Jew that we have to talk about because it's somebody you both knew. Gilbert knew him a little bit, and that's uh, Andy Kaufman. Oh God, yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, I love Andy. A, that's an hour show too, but we'll try to we'll try to condense it. Yeah. yeah, tell us. Yeah, it is an hour show. The yeah, and yeah. I loved Andy. He was just to, to me uh, one of the most brilliant and bravest comics I'd ever seen in my life. And tell us the agreement, the contract of how he said he has to bring in another person who will have his own dressing room <laughs> and that whole part. Was that oh when he had to have Tony too? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, the agreement the boy signed with Andy was that he would do the show if uh, this gentleman named Tony Clifton could do one episode of Taxi. <clears throat> Tony Clifton was Andy Kaufman's alter ego. When Andy would do a concert, uh, Tony Clifton, who was Andy, with uh, prosthetics on his face mm-hmm. and uh, uh, a stuffed suit so he looked fat, and a ruffled shirt and a brocade tuxedo because he was a lousy lounge singer from <laughs> Vegas. So he would open Andy's shows and, you know, get hooted off the stage and they'd say, bring on Andy, take a mission, an, an intermission. And then after intermission, Andy would come on and, uh, you know, do Foreign Man and do whatever he did, Elvis. and so A great Elvis. Yes, yeah. one of the best. He had the sneer He had down. the sneer. Yeah, that yeah. So uh, we he, so the show came up that he was going to do, and uh, I know exactly when it happened. I don't have Mary Lou's memory; she has that <laughs> crazy memory. But it was the day that Bucky Dent hit the home run 
Oh, to beat the, the Red, Red Sox, Sox one game playoff, right? Seventy eight, yeah. and so Andy was Andy had day night rehearsal. Andy Kaufman would come in at one o'clock for rehearsal because he was up till four in the morning and slept till twelve. <clears throat> and we were starting at nine o'clock rehearsal, and here and with the show with Tony Clifton, and here comes Tony Clifton at nine a.m. in the morning, and. Uh, he's, he, he he wants us to stop watching the game because he wants to rehearse, and he never wanted to rehearse. So we started this rehearsal, and it was not going to work because you had Andy Kaufman playing Tony Clifton playing Louis De Palma's brother. <laughs> and so I called up to the boys. They came to see a run-through, and they decided we have to get rid of Tony Clifton. And so... If you see Man in the Moon, uh, it's it's all in there. Well, it's fascinating so, from our perspective because Bonners is playing, who we had here on the podcast, is playing, a, 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 what, an amalgam of you and, and Weinberger? Yeah. 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 It's, so, it's bizarre. And, and what I find so strange about the movies is that Danny DeVito is not in Taxi. Uh, oh, yeah, he's playing George. Yeah. He's playing George. <laughs> right, yeah. we also had. Yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, was it yeah, like so, that, the way it was depicted in the film? It's pretty close. I mean, I remember... I remember that day when Ed came, uh, when Ed came down to fire him and Andy, uh, Tony, had uh, two prostitutes with him. <laughs> uh, you know, normal, normal shit that happens. Sure. And... Uh, I remember, you know, Ed fire Ed Fireman and and Tony said I won't I'm not leaving. And uh <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and I'm going, holy shit, this is the greatest ghetto theater I've ever seen. <laughs> and so we're watching. We're watching, Judd's watching, I'm watching Tony Danza had a super eight camera and he can't find the film it's oh. just sad oh. so f- he won't leave so finally Judd says alright I'm going to go play so Judd grabs him and throws him off the stage and everything like that and it was just it was wonderful theater and we we hired another actor and the show went on and it was fine and Andy came in the next week as if nothing happened I and, love that and when Andy was doing stuff like that did, did ever you or the other actors say, okay, cut this shit? No, no. Because Andy didn't do anything like that. Andy played Latka, and he had a photographic memory. He knew the, he knew the part. It was this one-dimensional character that Andy could play. And uh, he never, none of that shit ever happened other than the Tony Clifton incident. You got an audience with him, though, too, which I found fascinating. You had you had him at you you had dinner with him. I we had him. Uh, Ed would have occasional parties on taxi, and Andy was uncomfortable. So uh, my wife back then and I would mm-hmm. uh, have Andy come over to the house, and we would talk. And again, he was this he was this meek soul from Great Neck, Long Island. Yeah, but a genius, you know. And then we all went to uh, see his milk and cookies show uh, after. Uh, when when he was on taxi, when he oh uh, was that the, the improv fir- or somewhere? When no, he took, it was he, at the Huntington Hartford. Uh, oh, I think okay. First time he wrestled. Okay. And then, you know, he did all the characters and everything like that. And the end of the show, when we walked out, there were buses, 
And the buses took us to the pizza factory for milk and cookies. And it was just, it was so wonderful and weird. It's a magical nature to the guy. Gilbert, how well did you, did you get to know him? Not well. But you, I, you, but you saw all. him yeah. in the clubs early yeah, on. I, I, uh, yeah, we never actually spoke. He would come in. I remember I very clearly him doing stuff like um, reading a hundred... Uh, singing a hundred bottles of beer on the wall. <laughs> he do every one, and then yeah, and then it it gets to that point where you go, oh shit, he's gonna do the entire song. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, he never told jokes. No, a- Andy never told jokes. He he would he would do something till you laughed. I mean, he re- he came out red, gone with the wind, and you you know you didn't know what was going on. Pretty soon you'd start laughing, and that was. That was Andy's, you know, he was incredibly brave. Performance art. Yeah, perf- total performance art. Yeah, and and, and, uh, and farce. Let's yeah. talk a little bit, too. Uh, quickly, can you tell us about two actors that struck us that were on Taxi that you directed? Uh, Victor Buono <laughs> playing Reverend Jim's dad and Ruth Gordon. Wow. I, I don't remember too much about Victor. I don't, you know, I don't remember that. Sure, it's Ruth, a long time I ago, I know. Ruth, I uh, Ruth, I remember. Uh, yeah, she was sugar, sugar mama. Yep. You know, and uh, uh, I might as well tell the story. I don't think anybody's ever told. Uh, I think Judd told me this story. Um, she had, um, she had in the show. She had this guy. The, this guy was kind of a. Um, uh, a Semitic-looking guy who was her lover, mm-hmm. and his name was Aharon, and uh, that was the actor's name. And uh, <laughs> um, I said, I said, because I was done with the scene, and then I said, uh, I said to uh, my AD, I said, okay, I want to start the next scene. I need Ruth Gordon and Aharon. And she started laughing, and I don't know why she was laughing, anything like that. She came, she did the scene, she was very sweet. And then I said to Judd after, why was Ruth laughing at that point? And Judd said, because she thought you said, I need Ruth Gordon and a hard-on. <laughs> That's hilarious. At 88. That's hilarious. Was, How great is she and where's Papa, by the way, James? Oh, my God. Mo- a kind of black comedy that Hollywood doesn't make anymore. Oh, yeah. That was that was so wonderful to be able to work with her. Yeah. Let's let's talk about Cheers, too, the casting, qu- quickly, because th- also I was fascinated by the... Uh, uh, by the way, I love that you and the, you refer to you and the Charles brothers as two Mormons and a Jew. Speaking <laughs> speaking of Jews, but uh, the the genesis of Cheers is interesting. How it was going to be at first, you guys were Faulty Towers fans. Yeah, huge and, fans. Yeah, we'll talk about Cleese if we have time. And uh, at first, it was going to be a hotel, and then it was going to be a bar on the way to Vegas in Barstow, and then it was going to be a sports bar, and then you pick Boston. I mean, it's a it's an interesting road. Also, the casting is interesting. How you brought in three duos. Uh, we brought in the finals for uh, uh, for uh, Sam and Diane. <coughs> the finalists were yeah. Julia Juff, Duffy and Fred Dreyer. Fred Dreyer was at that point uh, a former defensive end for the Rams. Yeah, sure. 
Billy Devane and Lisa Icorn. William both Devane, Yanks. Gilbert. Right, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, well, Billy Devane and Lisa Icorn, who were in uh, Yanks together, and Ted and Shelley. And we, um, we invited the network to Paramount because there was a bar... <clears throat> there was a bar set on Bosom Buddies, so we used that bar set, and we rehearsed all three actors, and uh, all three sets of actors. And they were all wonderful in their own right. I mean, Billy was great, and uh, Freddie Dreyer was Sam Malone, because th- at that point, he was a wide receiver for the Patriots. And, uh, and Julia was great. They all had... But the people who had the greatest chemistry were Ted and Shelley. So uh, uh, we went up to the room and we discussed it. People, somebody was uh, really wanted us to hire Fred Dreyer, but at that point he didn't have the the ad, the comedy chops we needed. So mm-hmm. we ended up with Ted and Shelley, and it uh, I think it worked out. I uh, would say, and yeah. Shelley is another case of um, her character was like a, a snooty bitch, and yet she's a lovable character. Absolutely lovable, yeah. Uh, yeah, half the men wanted to uh, kill her, and half the men wanted to sleep with her. Yeah. Uh, and it was, uh, I give all my credit to, all the credit on that, to the Charles brothers. Uh, because when we discussed the script before they went off to write it, we discussed Sam working for a woman. And uh, that became the permutation after Shelley Law left. But at that point, we we uh, when I left them, we had the character of the coach, we had Norm, we had Cliff, everybody like that. But oh, we didn't have uh, we didn't have Cliff, but we had uh, we had uh, uh, Norm and Coach and Carla and stuff like that. And uh, they came back. I remember coming home from a vacation, and there was a script on my doorstep, and they had created this character of Diane, which I had never seen before. I had never seen that character. And the bar conversations, I had never seen that. And I said to them, you've brought radio back to television because it was so literate, so smart, so funny. I, I couldn't I couldn't believe what they did. And... Uh, um, it was, uh, you know, it was, you know, a seminal moment for all of us, that moment that that script arrived. And uh, so, you know, we got, we we cast it right. We got lucky with when somebody left with replacing them that was somebody equally as good or sometimes somebody better. Sure. And, uh, you know, it was it was a wonderful 11 years. Yeah, like Woody Harrelson was a totally different character than the coach was. Yeah, well, we were, uh, in 84, we followed uh, Family Ties. And Michael was such a star that when we when Nicky passed away, <clears throat> we didn't want to do an older guy again. We wanted to do a younger guy because we wanted to hopefully get some of the Michael Fox audience to watch Cheers. And then we had a kid who we really loved to play the part. And the last actor to walk in the room was Woody. And 
he walked in and he read with Teddy and we went, but of course, why didn't we think of going that way? And that was it. We just got lucky. And this is something Gilbert and I will never experience, but is there an electric, is there an electric yeah. moment when all of this comes together? The, the, uh, the, the, writing, and, the writing coalesces, the, acting, the, the right actors walk in the room where you just go, where you know in your bones, this thing is special, this thing is going to fly. And how does that... Well, f- we, yeah, we were flying when Woody came around. Yeah. But, I mean, in the, you go back to the beginning. That's what I mean. It, it, yeah. We, you know, you, you got to get a great script. Then you got to cast it great. Then you got to get a network to put you on a good time slot. Sure. Because sometimes great shows don't have anybody famous in there, they're in them, and there's no reason to watch them. So you got to get in a time slot where people can uh, come to the dance late because it takes a while in television to get the word out. So we were lucky, you know, we were lucky with a wonderful script on Cheers. We were lucky that Ted and Shelley were available at that time. We were lucky to be on NBC, which had nothing. Uh, You know, there was nothing. The sitcom was dying back then. They didn't have any big shows. They had a couple of dramas, uh, L.A. Law and maybe Hill Street. And uh, we, you know, you knew. uh, I always have a dress rehearsal um, before I shoot the show, three or four days. And on Cheers, we had this dress rehearsal, and the audience went crazy. So I knew we had something special, and I knew they were laughing. They laughed at Norm when Norm entered. Right. And and I looked at Glenn Charles, and I said, oh, my God, they're laughing at attitudes. So I knew, and, you know, we were lucky. We were lucky. We kind of, uh, you know— did nothing the first two years, and all of a sudden the Cosby came on, and so we got more people to the dance. And uh, you know, yeah, it, it's electric. It happens. It's you know, I've I've had it happen four or five or six times, and it's just That's there's nice. nothing like it. That's and nice. Quite an experience. What was the imagine. original storyline to the Big Bang Theory? Uh, uh, we did. On that, we did two pilots. Uh, we did a pilot. The first pilot was uh, the boys. It was Johnny and Jimmy, uh, Sheldon and Leonard, uh, who walking down the street, and they find a girl crying on the sidewalk, decide to take her in and live with her. She turns out she's a hooker. So you had these nerds living with a hooker, which I thought was a wonderful premise. But we could never get the casting right on that. And God love Chuck. Chuck Laurie went back and said to the network, let's take another shot at this. And they created the penny across the hall and put in two more nerds. And the rest is history. And uh, it's a tribute to Chuck. I only did the pilot of that show. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've worked with Chuck since then a lot. And he's a genius at what he does. He knows characters. He knows funny. And uh, those, you know, he's... He's keeping the sitcom alive right now. He is. Speaking of Jews we had on the podcast, <laughs> did you get a fan letter when you guys were working on Cheers from Norman Lear? I did. It was our first fan letter. What did that mean to you? He, oh, my God. 
I showed it to the boys. You know, this is when we were struggling, when we were... Yeah, it came at the the right time. Yeah, the first year on Thanksgiving, we finished the last... We were the last rated show on the air uh, that that week. It was scary. And Norman wrote this letter, how much he loved the show. And uh, we went to lunch with him. And who better to go to lunch with than the man who created Archie Bunker? And we went to the Brown Derby, which no longer exists. And we sat there in awe of Norman, and uh, it was so wonderful to see that he was in awe of us. How lovely. Nice. Wow. You Just at the time you guys needed a shot in the arm and Praise from Caesar showed up. Yes. <laughs> that is fantastic. Let, let's talk a little bit about Will and Grace before we let you out of here, uh, James, because I know it's a show you're very proud of, uh, yeah. as you should be, because it's a game-changing show. It's a trailblazing show. It's a show that means a lot to a lot of people and changed the culture. And as with Taxi, you kind of knew from the beginning. You knew, I guess, when you saw Max and David's script. Again, I read the script. Um, it was uh, uh, a tribute to Warren Littlefield because Max and David had wrote a pilot for NBC previously, and they didn't pick that up, but they've, Warren said, I like this character's Will and Grace. Can we do a show about them? So Max and David went off and wrote the show, and I read it, and I loved it. I just, uh, I, I thought how wonderful this show was. It was smart. It was funny. It was pertinent. And uh, I, I said to my agent, I have to do this show. So I did this pilot, and it was, again, at the dress rehearsal in front of this audience. It was through the roof. It was just wonderful. And uh, so the network picked it up, and uh, the rest is history. I mean, we've, I'm doing the reboot right now. This is our, almost our 230th show, and it still makes me laugh harder than any other show. And you said that you're against reunions. Uh, Well, you said they were, you said they're hard to do. (laughs) <laughs> They're hard to do. Yeah. Uh, this was Max Muchnick's idea. We did a political video with the four of them, and the network liked the show, and the four of them kind of looked the same. So we said, why not try it? So we tried it, and it was uh, it, it's turned out okay. It's, it's, listen, the, the, they've still got the same chemistry. I know. I, I was skeptical, too. I said, well, I don't know. It's been years, and will it happen again? Can you make that magic again? But they're, they're yeah. such infectious performers. No other show does those jokes. You can't yeah. do those jokes. Yeah, we're the, we're, the, we're the leading show in euphemisms, uh, because euphemisms are funnier than the actual word. And uh, it, it's just, it, it makes me, it's such a delight to go to work. It's such a delight to, you know, hear these wonderful lines that Max and David and the rest of the writers have created. <clears throat> so it's now, you know, I'm well into my late 30s and to be able to, <laughs> <laughs> to, be able to have a show in your late 30s that really makes you laugh is, is, is just gives you new life. So a couple of actors uh, that I that I marked that I set aside here uh, from from Will and Grace. We just lost the great Rip Torn. Yeah. A- any any particular standout moments or Gene Wilder? 
somebody we also lost not long ago? Yeah, we had, you know, we we had so many guest stars because once the show um, took off, everybody wanted to be on the show. We've had every gay icon in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Cher. Not Madonna, Gilbert, though. <laughs> not, not Gilbert. You know. <laughs> Maybe there's room uh, in the reboot, Gil. <laughs> Uh, we had Patty Lapone, we had Bernadette Peters. All of them, yeah. All of them. Did you we say Elton? Yeah. Yeah, we had Elton. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, we, uh, uh, they were all great. They, you know, if you're, if you're on that show as a guest star, you got to come up to the level to, of the four of them. If you don't come up to the level of the four of them, you're going to be eaten alive. But so every guest actor... Uh, uh, you know, had had fun on the show. Uh, you know, sure. Glenn Close was playing uh, Annie Leibovitz, and she had a great time. Kevin Bacon, Kevin Bacon oh, was Michael great. Douglas, Michael Douglas was Michael fun. Douglas playing a gay cop. Yeah, gay Everybody. man dancing. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and you got we, to direct the great Sidney Pollock. Sidney was Will's father, a, a wonderful man. So you know, we were all in awe when he was on the stage. And he loved it. He loved being directed. Oh, interesting. Well, he started as an actor, right? Yeah. 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 How does it feel? And I know you're not a proselytizer. You've said it, and you you know you leave the the political stuff to to people like Norman. But it has to be gratifying too to be part of a show, especially in light of what Joe Biden said when he when he, I guess he evolved on gay marriage. That that Will and Grace was, in some way, responsible for changing the the country's perception of gay people. To be part of something like that. Yeah, I don't think, you know, what we say on the show is, uh, what we've said is, Ellen opened the door and we broke it down. Yeah, I'll say. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not good with proselytizing, and I don't think Max and David want to preach either. Uh, <clears throat> what the show did, the best example uh, is, uh, I would drive carpool on Thursday in, uh, when my kids went to high school. And these were 13, 14-year-olds, and Will and Grace was on Thursday night. <clears throat> and I would pick them up, and as we were driving to school, they would say to me, what's on Will and Grace tonight? And I thought, wow, we have 13 and 14-year-olds watching the show. They have no preconception of what gay is. Uh, and so they're enjoying the show, so maybe... They will not be uh, influenced by a bad talk about gay people or something like that. Maybe they've been exposed to these people, so there'll be some tolerance. Mm-hmm. Not to say that they would, but you know, I I, I said so. Maybe <clears throat> elsewhere in the world, there are these young people watching the show and getting. Uh, uh, an idea that gay people are funny like everybody else, and they're just other human beings. So uh, I don't think we ever set out to do that. I, you know, I, I told Max and David at the end of the first episode of Will and Grace, we did. I wanted a kiss between Will and Grace, so that maybe America would think that Will could take the magic pills and marry Grace and become straight. Mm-hmm. And well, that was never going to happen, but I figured if I could get people to think that, they'd watch the show, 
And then they'd see how funny it was, and they wouldn't care. So maybe it worked, maybe it didn't work, but, uh, uh, you know, 200 230 shows later, we're still on the air. Keep it going as long, as long as you can. I, I just quickly want to read some messages that we got here. I reached out to people you worked with, some that have done the show, some that haven't. Michael McKean. Oh, God. Says, please send my regards. Tell him I watched a taxi episode in a hotel room. The, lo- the local broadcaster was having equipment problems, which slowed the, play bla- uh, the playback. <laughs> and Jim Brooks' trademark whooping laugh turned into a melancholy banshee motif. And it made Michael. me love him even more. I, I work with Michael uh, on Laverne and Shirley. Yep. Yep. Don Rio says, just tell Jimmy I love him which I wanted to pass along. And Alan Zweibel, I asked about a pilot you did called Big Shots in America. Right, with Joey Montagna. That's it. And he he says, the pilot should have worked. Great cast, great director, and the script wasn't bad. But ask Jim if we could work together again someday. I've matured a bit, and I've done a few things since that pilot. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I loved Alan. I loved... I loved also working in New York, and Lorne was the producer on that pilot, mm-hmm. so I got to work with Lorne, and that was uh, that that was great. And Ken Levine, he says, ask James, uh, Jim, if he held it against my partner David Isaacs and I that during the Bar Wars episode of Cheers, we wrote we had their rival Gary play a practical joke by filling Rebecca's office with sheep. Does this mean anything to you? No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Kenny and David wrote a lot of really, really funny scripts. Funny writers. Yeah. Yeah. Last thing I want to ask you is how did it feel um, when NBC decided to do the tribute show? I I guess you had your doubts because you made a joke. You said to Sean Hayes, who was producing it, you asked him uh, if you could take the drugs that they were taking. Yeah. (laughs) So you, you strike me as a kind of a humble guy. Was it... Was it tough to, to, to do that, to let everybody pay tribute to you and then get have to get up and make a speech? Yes. Yeah, I'm not, you know, although I've acted in a few shows, I'm sure you guys, I was in a new heart in a road. We have them all here. Us. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, it's my, uh, it's my, re- it's not even a real. It's only an R-E. Okay. Um, uh, it was very difficult for me. I, you know, I am... I am a humble guy. I, uh, I, uh, I, I work. I, I, you know, I work from the heart, and to see all that tribute, it, it was amazing to me. But the great <clears throat> moment that those at home didn't see was the fact of the Big Bang cast going over to the cast of Friends, who they had watched. Wow. And hugging and people going to see the taxi cast and the cheers cast. These actors in shows I did later who had grown up on these shows to get all these people in this room at the same time was, you know, it was, you know, it was, I got such an ahkus out of it. I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 uh, in case you didn't know I was Jewish, uh, I, I was, I was. I was thrilled by it. I, uh, I can imagine. I, 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 had, I had a wonderful time. And showing your humility, you gave credit to everyone around you. I mean, the, right down to the crew. Not the actors, the showrunners, the writers. Right. Yeah. To your they cr- deserve it. They deserve it. I'm nothing without them. That's sweet. We could do 100 shows. There's so much. I, I mean, I don't know if you can see the cards I have on the table here, James. 
<laughs> I got about 20 cards here. I even you made, can ask me anything you want. I even made a list of the pile of some of the series that 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 I liked. You were talking about Free Country that you that you directed the Associates uh-huh. with Martin Short. I mean, Best of the West, Pacific Station with Robert Guillaume, Madman of the People with the great Dabney Coleman, George and Leo. We talked about uh, Vic, Victor Fresco's Sean Saves the World, uh, Don Rio's Pearl, Stark Raving Mad. These were good shows. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, it's just... Finelli Boys? Oh, that's with Joey Pants. Yeah, another one. And Libertini. Libertini. God. Joey Pants and Chris Maloney. Yes, yes. But they didn't have the luck. They didn't have the things going for them that that, that Cheers had. No, you know, it's just... Sometimes shows work, sometimes they don't. I, you know, it's it's a crapshoot. And I've been holding back from asking you to do this, but can you sing a little of my country tis of thee? <laughs> Why don't you have him sing his half Torah? <laughs> I paid somebody to sing my half Torah. <laughs> Did you? I was uh, speaking of that. I was. I was. My parents. My parents asked me at thirteen a question you should never ask a young Jewish boy which is, do you want to be bar mitzvah? Because the Jewish boy will say no, because it's work. So I was not bar mitzvah. Uh, neither was Gilbert. Yeah. Uh, what? I wasn't. Well, well you, you can I, still do it. You can still do it. <laughs> because I was bar mitzvah at 47 years old. Wow. Well, how, how old was... Kirk Douglas's second oh, bar mitzvah. He was like I, in his nineties. Yeah, something. I think in his nineties. I was bar mitzvah of forty-seven because my first wife was a conservative Jew, and I said, "Why not?" So I was bar mitzvah at an Orthodox shul. I uh, I did the prayers in and out of the haftorah. I paid a guy to sing the haftorah for me. Oh, you weren't <laughs> kidding! <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. and. and uh, as a tribute to me, uh, uh, at my 50th birthday party, uh, Brandon Tartikoff, the late, wonderful Brandon Tartikoff, who was my dear friend, uh, made a video for me. And one of the, the a couple of uh, people they interviewed, they interviewed the Charles brothers. And the Charles brothers said, I was the only man they knew uh, that was bar mitzvah to 47 and lost his hair at 13. <laughs> <laughs> So I got two guys here who were not originally bar mitzvahed when they were when they were supposed to be, but you can be bar mitzvahed at any time. Yeah, and and James will direct it, Gil. Yeah, yeah. I'll do it. <laughs> and if 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 some people will promise they'll come over with money, <laughs> I will get the mitzvah. You'll get cufflinks or fountain yeah. pens. Or... Are you going to do something else with Norman Lear? You did the the All in the Family Jefferson's reboot. Uh, yeah, I had a great time. I had a wonderful time. I worked with Norman. Yeah. Uh, yeah, one of my idols, and uh, <clears throat> with all these actors who uh, who are all s- wonderful stars in their own right, who came together and uh, were, were, was was in my were in my lifeboat with me. And That's nice. We made this wonderful show, and it was thrilling and exciting, and it got good ratings. And uh, I think they're doing a couple more. Uh, I and it was. Uh, you know, it was wonderful to direct the Bible because uh, those scripts are, you know, they are they're great. They're sacred. They're sacred. Yeah, you know, I know you're a big admirer of Larry David, uh, 
James, but yes. did, did you know that Larry David directed Gilbert in a pilot? <laughs> I don't know this. What, what, what <laughs> this was it called? Or did he write it and not pilot. direct it? Yeah, he wrote he it. He wrote it. Forgive me. It was a pilot called Norman's Corner. Have you heard of it? I, I have not. Okay. I barely have, and I was <laughs> starring in it. With Arnold Stang. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it was so bad that Is it my, years... How bad was it? Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> years later... Years later, uh, when they were pitching Seinfeld, uh, they they asked, "Well, okay, who's who'll be writing this?" And they said, "Larry David." And they said, "Isn't he the guy that wrote that piece <laughs> of shit for Gilbert Gottfried?" <laughs> Oh, James, we'll send you a link so you can enjoy it. Oh my God, I can't, I can't wait. We'll send if you. I have to fall asleep at night. I'll put it on. We'll send you a link. Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, thank you guys. This was a joy for us. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, some questions I've never been asked before, and I loved it. I'm glad. P- pl- and, thank and you. You're for- not going to sing my country. Tis <laughs> He's not my gonna- country. My country. Tis. But I had to sing. You know. Uh, my country is the sweet land of liberty. I can also sing. I can also sing uh, uh, from the opera Carmen. Avec la garde montante, nous arrivons, nous voilà. Sonnez trompette, cantate, ta 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 ta. A man of many talents. The man has eight Emmys, and you just made him sing "My Country Tis of Thee." James, thank you so much. Thanks for all the years of entertainment and for being such a part of our lives. Thank you, guys. You're so sweet and good luck. Well, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and the man who's done millions of TV shows. <laughs> yeah, it is millions now. And never fucking hired me <laughs> James Burroughs <laughs> you got a better choice of a better chance of Edgar Rice Burroughs yeah, you at, at this point James thank you so much what, one of my you. favorite shows that we've done thank you sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name Everybody knows your name You wanna go where people know People are all the same You wanna go where everybody knows your name